once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. More from Anna Marie Cox. Before I found God, I had an unconsciously manufactured higher power. I spent a lifetime trying to earn extra credit from some imaginary teacher, grade-grubbing under the delusion that my continuing mistakes were constantly held against me, and I knew in my heart that failure was inevitable. Lead teacher Randy Pope continues the series, The Ticket, Imputed Righteousness, with this message entitled Motives and Implications, which covers Romans chapter 3, verses 25 through 31. Thank you for joining us today. Let's pray together. Father, now we come to your word and we ask you that you would grant us eyes that would see that which only you could show us and ears to Hear and understand only that which you could impart to us. Lord, as we talk about the ticket, that one way to find life with you, would you grant us to understand? Would you grant us to be able to take, hold on to, and embrace the fullness of your truth that we might find the freedom, the joy, and the honor to give to you because of it? So bless, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I would assume that most everybody here, churched or even unchurched, would be familiar with the names Thief on the Cross and Apostle Paul. Now, they're totally two different people in totally different circumstances of life and certainly in different spiritual places in their experience. But if we were to have to make a decision I'd like to know what you would think. I'm going to pose a theological question to you. You have a few options of what you can answer. And in case somebody might be embarrassed that, oh, I I don't feel good holding up my hand because I may have a wrong answer and it exposes the fact that you're not perfect, I won't have you raise your hand, but I will ask you to make a choice, all right? Here's the question and the choice to be made. When thinking about being righteous, if both of those two were evaluated the moment before their death, the very second before they died, which do you think would be the most righteous? And of course, there could be an answer. I think they're equally righteous. So really, there are three alternatives. You could say, well, I think the thief was more righteous, and I'm going to throw that one out because I don't think anybody would choose that. It leaves us with two choices, and that is either that Paul was the more righteous or they were equally righteous. So everybody make a choice. I won't have you raise your hand, but everybody consciously make a choice. Theologically, what do you believe the answer to that question to be? Now, assuming you've answered, if you said Paul was the most righteous, you were correct. If you said they were equally righteous, you were correct. Do you understand that? That's important to know. There is two senses in which we can say righteousness, more so yes, equal yes. Here is how I would explain that. Last week, I shared a little diagram, very familiar to most of our church here. I often call it the do-done diagram, performance grace diagram, but whatever. It's a diagram that I use as I'm helping people understand the Christian faith. And I shared it last week in light of everything we were teaching. I'm going to throw it up this time, not write it up as I did, but I'll just put it up here as a, uh, 
holistic picture. So here was the thought, was that we have God, we want to relate to God, two ways of relating that we can try to relate. Uh, one is performance, we start here, it's the, it's the religion of do, what we do for God and don't do for God. It creates a righteousness in us, but it's one that we create by what we do and what we don't do, so we call it self-righteousness, as opposed to here we start with God and come down because this is about grace. It's what God has done for us as a free gift. It creates within us a righteousness, but this happens to be Christ's righteousness. The series that we're in is really discussing what this righteousness called Christ's imputed righteousness really is all about. This is our series in Romans. We talked about, well, you've got to put love down here because if not, you don't get the full picture. What he does to us compels us to love and to perform and therefore to do the things that God tells us to do. The person over here is doing in order that God would love them. The person who starts here and goes all the way around, that person is saying, no, I do it because God loves me. Now, there are two types of righteousness as can be explained theologically. I'm going to put them up now, two words. One is declarative righteousness. The other is demonstrative righteousness. So I asked the question, which do you think was most righteous between the two? And some of you, I'm sure, said, I think Paul was more righteous. You know, that's really true in the sense that he demonstrated a greater degree of righteousness than the thief on the cross could ever imagine because he just became a follower. The reality is, though, they were equal in declarative righteousness. The minute that the thief turned his heart over to the Lord, then he would be declared righteous by the work of Christ. Righteousness, meaning the righteousness of Christ given to him, we're using the term in this series manifested out of Romans 3 or imputed, a theological term, placed within. And so here the righteousness of God, oh, equal the same. No difference between the two. That means that both of those two, standing before God, if at the same moment God would look at them and say, I see you exactly the same. I see you fully clothed, thief, fully clothed in the righteousness of Christ. I see you, apostle, fully clothed in the righteousness of Christ. I make no distinction between the two. You're loved the same, you're blessed the same, you're honored the same. Now, when it comes to a demonstrative righteousness, now Paul is going to be way ahead of where the thief would be. The love would be the same, the honor and all the things that would be bestowed, sure. Now, there would be gifts, uh, kind of we talk about the, the uh, rewards of heaven and so forth, and we're not going to get into that now, but at the same time, the love, no different, the acceptance, no different, all the same. This is a series that we're in called The Ticket. And this series is dealing with what is the ticket, that is, what does it take to get into what we would call a right relationship with God, loved fully by Him? And the answer is the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. And as the book of Romans will then add, through faith in Jesus Christ. That is the essence of this series. We're in Romans chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you now to turn with me to that text. 
I love to know that our people here who are part of this church are bringing your Bibles. Electronic or not, doesn't matter. But I encourage you, even though we may have it in the text, uh, in the uh, insert, we put scriptures up, I think it is so good to, to get used to using the Bible. Now, I'd like for you to do this primarily, stay on the text that we are teaching for the day. I'll go to other texts, back and forth. You can't flip too fast to that, so don't worry. But I just think it's a great idea if you can bring your Bibles. I think that's a, it's a good thing to, to be doing. Now, in light of that, this last week, we covered chapter 3, 21 through 25a, the first part. Uh, next, uh, or last week we did that. This week, we're covering 25b through verse 31. Let me give you my statement of thesis, which basically summarizes last week and this week. It goes like this. Because there are no good people, God, as a demonstration of his love, provides a means of hope for sinful man. That hope is this, the imputing of his righteousness. He does this by means of justification, redemption, and propitiation. Now, when I say there are no good people... I know that you, many of you, have not been in the series that was done a previous year uh, where we went through the first three chapters of Roman, which basically is teaching that entire subject matter. They're none righteous, no, not one. There's no good. There's none, no, not one. And so having built on that, now what do we do if we're in such a condition? And the answer is it's the righteousness of Christ given to us. How? By means of, in three words, justification, redemption, and propitiation. Now, I'd like to read the text, and I'll put it in the outline form from last week just very quickly. The first thing we saw in last week's text was the fact that there are two opposing options that people are choosing between and trying to relate to God. It's much like my diagram. But the way he would put it would be, number one, it's going to be the law, meaning doing what God says to do, not doing what God says not to do. These people would say, to the greater degree that I do and don't do according to God's ways, the more accepted I am, the more loved I am, the greater chance I have to live eternally in heaven. Most religion of the world is based on that option. Christianity is quite, quite, quite different. It says no. It's based, secondly, on the manifested, and we can call it imputed or given righteousness of Christ, and that it will add through faith in Jesus. Let's read chapter 3, 21 through 23. Now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, meaning that's the teaching of the whole of the rest of Scripture, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, that means trust, put their trust in Him. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And because all have sinned and fall short of his glory, they have to have the righteousness of Christ to regain the glory needed. So having gone through that, we now see the second part is three related gifts. And this is through 324 through the first part of 25. And these are those three words, justification, re redemption, and then propitiation. Let's read the text and then we'll jump into this week's. Romans 3, 24 and 25 says, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, 
whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. Now, today, we're going to continue the study, and we're going to really get behind the, the curtains, in a sense. The, the reality is, okay, this is what God has done. You ever wonder, God, why did you do it that way? I see you took care of a people called your people, but all this stuff, the redemption, the propitiation, the stuff we've talked about, the righteousness of Christ, why? What, what are your motives? And he gives us a little glimpse, first of all, of the motives. And then he closes with some implications to those motives and what he's done. So let's look, first of all, at three motives that he's given. We'll read the text, first of all, beginning in 25 through 26 reads like this this was to demonstrate his righteousness because in forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed well the demonstration I say of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus now, let me just list them and explain them as we go through them. First of all, to demonstrate his righteousness. That's why he did what he did, to demonstrate his righteousness. And by the way, this is not the imputed righteousness. He's not saying, I wanted to show imputed righteousness. He's saying, no, 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 I did this to demonstrate my character of righteousness. And we'll see why very soon. But let's read the little part of the verse that has that. This was to demonstrate his righteousness. Demonstrate means to declare or to prove. Who is he proving this to? When it says his righteousness, we said we're talking about his, his own righteousness. He wanted to prove his righteousness. Why is that? You see, the reality is, is that Jesus had declared, well, I'm going to say God Almighty, the triune God and the Father had declared in the Old Testament days that he would redeem his people. His people in the Old Testament were called Israel. His people in the New Testament were called the church. Some of you have heard the teaching. It comes out of the book of Revelation how there is a moment through history. There is a time through history that Satan had access to the presence of God. And as it was there that the scriptures read that he accused the brethren, meaning the family of God, he accused them day and night. How was he accusing them? He was accusing them to say, God, you've said that James is yours. You've said that Elizabeth is yours. But you have not redeemed those people because there is no account for their sin. You have promised to account for their sin, but you haven't. And of course, it was the plan and the hope of the evil one to thwart that whole thing. The death of the babies at the birth of Jesus, all that going on. And so in his mind, in a deranged fashion, he's thinking, I'm still going to stop this whole thing from happening. But he didn't. But now is an opportunity 
because of what has happened through the death of his son Jesus, now Paul is declaring on behalf of God, ah, now he's demonstrating his righteousness. Or to go to the next point, the second reason, very closely associated, it's to justify past forgiveness. The rest of verse 25 reads like this, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the previously committed, and he's talking about there, in the forbearance of God, out of the graciousness of God, he, he literally passed over. He did not bring condemnation to a people who he had promised that he was going to include in his family. Very interesting. In doing so, what he's saying is simply this. I had a picture of what I was going to do through the lambs and through all the goats and the shedding of blood, as Hebrews chapter 9 says, that didn't take away sin. It merely pointed to the one who would take away sin. And now he's saying he can justify the forgiveness that he had offered without having accomplished a means to pay for the sin. That's literally what he's saying. Here's the way I journaled what I think this means. It appeared as if God had been looking over the sins of Israel for years without any basis. But on the cross, he gave a public explanation for what he had done. In doing so, he literally was vindicating his own character. I don't know how many of you have ever been a victim of character assault. But can you imagine if you have? Can you imagine what God might be saying here? Years ago in the early life of our church, there was, there was a situation in which there were some grave consequences in the life of our ministry. And it was assumed that I was the one responsible for what had happened. I knew that I was not responsible. But words seemed to be out, and some people jumped on board to say it was me. Now, you got to know, this is who I am. Best way I can probably illustrate it is this last Thursday night, I'm with the elders. We have nine elders that are an elder leadership team. They are my authority. I submit to that authority, but they shepherd me. They pray for me. They care for me. And by my request years ago, I asked, would you meet with me for an hour before we do business? And would you, would you ask me hard questions? Would you, you know, check into my heart and soul and life and where I am and what I'm doing? And I'll need that and correction and help and prayer. And they pray over me. They, they're just an amazing team of, of men that work with me. In doing so, last Thursday, one of them made the request, said, tell us about, you know, basically, what's the areas of your sin that you're so challenged with? What are the areas that you struggle? Well, that's an easy one for me because I journal daily and I, I, I ask forgiveness for the same things that are just a constant battle for me. And I said, well, I'll tell you my battlefield. Two primary ones. One is I am an extremely selfish person. And no, make no bones about it. I'm extremely, I'm, I'm very thankful. I know Carol even more thankful probably that, that I have been redeemed and that I have the capability of being, you know, 
full of God's spirit to be able to overcome some of it, you know? And so I'm just a selfish person. But I said, number two, I have, a, uh, I have an idol of my life. I can tell you for sure what the idol is. I got many idols, but one that's my big battlefield, and it's an it's a idol of reputation. I want to be well thought of. I want people to say good things instead of bad things. I mean, that's just, that's something I have to be very, very careful. Nothing wrong to want a, a good reputation, but it can become idolatrous. It can be something you think if I don't have, then I can't be satisfied or happy. Well, imagine having that raw area, and years ago, even to a greater degree, and all of a sudden, in my very church, word is out that I have done this despicable thing, basically, and leadership, and what I'd done to the church, and I'd done this, and I, and I knew that I had, had, in fact, I knew who it was that did it, who even admitted to me that they did it. Well, in time, everything took care of itself. But I can remember in the midst of that, right when it was so raw, and it was, it was just blossoming, I remember at that time, I got, I don't know why, I got a phone call, which is rare, from one of my rent mentors, uh, a man named Jim Baird. And he called. And I don't know what it was about. But the minute I heard his voice, I guess because of the relationship, whatever, I started bawling. I cried so hard, I couldn't stop. In fact, in the midst of kind of quieting down, he said, Randy, is Carol okay? Have you had a death? And I tell you, at that time, it felt as if it was that painful. I know it was ridiculous that it would, but that's the way it felt. My character had been assassinated. There was a death in my heart. Now, can you hear that story and then imagine, we're talking here about almighty, perfect God. And now God's character, it has been hammered by the evil one, the peoples of this world who stand against him and say, he's not, he won't, he didn't, he'll never do it. And now all of a sudden, redemption accomplished. And he says, now my character is vindicated. I have proven to do all I said I would do. Now in doing that, we see number three. The third portion says to be both just and the justifier. Now these overlap a lot, but verse 26 reads like this. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Just and the justifier. Now, I wrote into my journal, just again, I was just journaling some thoughts about this, and I just lifted this out. I thought this might be a, a way to explain it. I put God's righteousness imputed to us always manifests itself in God's righteousness demonstrated by us. It's, a, it's the reality here that God has done something in us that's going to be manifested through us. And he's saying here, to do that, I'm proving myself to be forgiving you and justified as the one who forgives. I remember when I was in, uh, when I was in the earliest days of our church, we, had, we lived in an apartment and 
outside the back of the apartment, I saw some kids playing around, and I, I don't know why I was thinking about, hey, one of those kids have ever heard the truth and so forth. And so I took a break, and I went down, and I, I gathered the guys. And I said, hey, can let me tell you a little story. I think y'all find this to be somewhat interesting. And they said, oh, okay. And I said, uh, let me tell you the story about a, 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 young, a young fellow who was driving his car. He'd just gotten his license and so forth, and, and actually he was uh, caught speeding. He was going maybe uh, uh, 75 in a, in a 45 mile, you know, uh, zone, and, and he, he got ticketed, pretty heavy fine, got ticketed. So he was going to have to come to court, and uh, so he shows up at court, and to his great surprise and, and fear, he finds that his dad, who is a lawyer, is actually on the bench of that court that day. And so he comes in. And he sees his dad, and his dad sees him having not heard about this and saying, what in the, what in the world? And says, officer, this is my son. What, what's he done? And the officer says, well, we caught him going 75 into 45 miles zone. He looks down at his son. He says, son, is that, is that true or not? He said, yeah, dad, it's true. He said, son, do you know the penalty for this? This is a $300 fine. Son, do you have that money? And they said, Dad, you know I don't have any money. Now the dad's got a choice to make. He's got some options. The first thing he could do is he could say, Son, I love you too much to see you pay this kind of penalty. And so I'm going to ask the people of the court to quietly, just, if you just not listen, or what you hear, please don't repeat. But son, you go home. I'm going to let you. I love you too much to see you pay that kind of penalty. Now, if we could even call that love, one thing for sure, we would say that's not justice because the penalty of the broken law has not been dealt with. And so that would be an option, but it would not be a truly righteous option. He could say to his son, son, you go to, you go to jail for two weeks. You pay your fine through time and I'm going to put you in jail. And he would be certainly just to do that. But there is a third alternative. And so I tell these kids, I say, instead, you know what the dad did? He steps down from the bench. He takes off his robe. He turns to his son. And now he says, I'm speaking to you now as not as a judge, but I'm speaking to you as a father. And I want to say to you, here's $300. He hands him the cash so that he can be just at the same time as showing love. And, of course, my point to these kids was that's exactly what God has done for us. He stepped down out of the throne of heaven in the person of Jesus Christ, and he paid the penalty that we should be paying for us so that we don't have to pay the penalty. I said, kids, do you get that? Yeah. I said, all right, so let's make sure you get the big point here. Now, the father is holding out the money to the son. What would the son have to do for that to be his and of course, I just want them to understand the idea of you just take it. It's a gift. You just receive it. One of the kids spoke up first and said, I'd have to mow the yard a hundred years. <laughs> I said, yeah, I know. That's the way it feels. But no, no, no. Let's go back through this. You just take it, right? You just take it. Well, there's the point. And God says, there's another motive because I wanted to be the justifier, but I couldn't justify without being just. So all of those motives for what he's done. Now, let's very 
Let's very quickly look at a few implications, and these are very simple. Uh, Number one, it says that boasting is excluded. Boasting is excluded. Romans 3, 27 through 28 says, where then is boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? And by that word law there, it means principle. By what kind of principle? Of works? No, but by the law or the principle of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So basically, the point is here, a Christian, don't for a minute put your chest out and say, look at me, I'm a follower of Jesus, look what I did, because it has nothing to do with what you did. It has to do with what he did, and he gifted it. It's a gift of God, and everything is in the gift. The gift of faith, the gift of repentance, the gift of the salvation. Everything is a gift, so don't boast. It excludes boasting once you understand it. Number two, distinctions are excluded. 29 through 30 says, Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? And that was a lot of debate going on then. It was new that Gentiles had been brought in, and and now people are saying, really, are they different? Do we treat them different? He said, no, no. Yes, Gentiles also, since indeed God who will justify the circumcised, which are the Jewish people, by faith. And the uncircumcised through faith is one. Uncircumcised referring to Gentiles. And these words, by faith and through faith, identical. There's not, he's not making a distinction. This one by, this one through. No, no, no. It's two different expressions of the very same thing. He's saying, literally, there is no distinction. So if you think, well, because I am this, and because I have that, because I was raised here, because I'm just, it doesn't matter. Everybody comes the same way. Takes us to the third, and that is law is established. Last verse is verse 31. It says, do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. And then he says, on the contrary, we establish the law. Very interesting. The word establish means to hold up or to show it to be wonderful. It was in the 1860s. There was a a new theology that came into the world of faith, of Christianity. It never had the name before, the old plan, everything was just seen and understood at that time, and it, it just came on the scene and became very, very popular very quickly. It was called dispensationalism. And it divided the old dispensation and the new dispensation in such a way that the implications of that down through the teaching of that year after year became more and more of the reality that, hey, Everything's different in the old and the new, and it left with this idea that the old was about the law and the new is about grace. Now, a lot of the eras of dispensationalism, I think, have drifted out as, as it's become more and more evident, but it still carries a lot of the same beliefs among people, whether, they whether I'm dispensationalist or not, it doesn't matter. They get the same error that's been left by that theology. Here is the error. The Old Testament had law, which was really bad. But the New Testament has grace, which is really good. Not so. You know, the Old Testament had law 
and grace. The New Testament has law and grace. If you really want to understand it, what it's saying is this. Yeah, the Old Testament had something very, very, very beautiful that was emphasized a lot, and it was called law. It's very, very, very beautiful. And let me tell you, the New Testament has an emphasis on the grace. Yes, very, very, very beautiful. But you know what this law did? The law was our friend. It's such a very important part of our life because this law puts a spotlight on the heart that shows us the sin that needs the grace that God gives. And the more the law does its work in our hearts, the more grace becomes a compelling part of life. And oh, by the way, once grace grabs your heart, it pushes you back to the law. Now, true, salvation by law never was the reality, but that is pitted by Paul against salvation by grace. Yes. But please, Christian community, don't take law and grace and pit them against each other. How does that boil down to a practical aspect of our lives today? Many of the young generation, I think it's a sociological issue, but a lot of the younger Christian generation today has just wanted so much to experience, as we all do, we want unconditional love shown to us. And because of the absence of something, we'll sometimes go to the extreme of something to replace it. And so uh, the younger generation today, many of which, and I don't think it's represented much in this church But let me tell you, a lot of the younger generation, what they're saying is, don't give me any of law. I want that excluded. Let's get out of it. Not salvation by law, but even living by law. And just give me grace. Now, let me tell you, it's a hard thing when you see a church emphasizing just law. Oh, my goodness. But you don't either want to just emphasize grace. I like to put it like a walk. I have a right and left leg. One represents the grace of God, the other, the duty to God's ways, his law. And always we begin with the right foot. The right leg steps forward because it begins with grace. Always with grace. But it's just appropriate and balanced walk to follow it by the duty that that grace calls for. It's declarative, always leading to demonstrative righteousness. It's a right leg and a left leg. If you hop on one leg, you can make some distance maybe, but there's no balance. It's going to get you into trouble. So there's always the two. The beauty of the law driving us to grace. The glory of grace that drives us to the beauty of the law. And that's the Christian that learns how to live life as God intends us to live. Let me close with these three just observations, just as statements. The first observation would be this. That there is no gift as precious as God's righteousness. Once you begin to understand the righteousness, you say, you know, there is no gift that can compare. No gift. I was with a, I was with a student at my alma mater. I didn't even know him. I met him in the hall. We were talking, and something came up about faith, and he knew I was a Christian or something. We got to talking, and he was putting down our faith or something. I said, hey, you know, let me ask you a question. I said, I bet I can, I'll play a little game with you. I bet you, without even knowing you, that I can tell you something that you want more than anything you can pick that you would say you would want. So here's the deal. You pick anything, material, non-material, pick it, and you hold it up, and I'm going to tell you something you want more, and you will agree with me, not you. So he took the challenge. He, I don't forget what he told me. And I said, that's easy. 
You didn't even give me a challenge on that one. He said, what do I want more? I said, you know what you want? You want to know that if there is truly a God, that you are in favor with him and that he is looking out for you, that he's protecting you, that he loves you unconditionally, and he'll love you that way all through eternity, taking you to heaven with him. He goes, yep. (laughs) You see, when Christians get that perspective that we've got the best there is, have we got problems just like, absolutely. But boy, when we realize, oh my goodness, there is no gift as precious. Everything else becomes what I call so what endeavors. So what, men? So what if we succeed or we win or we're the best? Really, what? that didn't even compare. Or ladies, so what if you've got the, the best-looking family? Or, or you've got the, the best home? Or, or you've got the best career of anybody? Really, what difference does it really make? And young people, okay, you're the best athlete, you're the best student, you're the best, you know, you can get to date anybody you want. Really, does it really matter that much? Not in comparison. If you don't compare, then it's big. But when you compare, it puts it in perspective. Or as number two suggests, no matter how significant our problems may be, to possess God's righteousness makes us the most blessed of all people. And isn't that true? Carol and I were driving home from our our trip away uh, this last month. And we were just talking about the blessings of God on our lives. And we were talking about the reality that, hey, we have up seasons, we have down seasons, and regardless of what down seasons come in our life, we said, wouldn't we just have to say that we are the most blessed to have what we have just in our faith in Christ. What we've got puts us in a place that it doesn't matter in reality. Not in comparison. It really puts your problems. It puts your prosperity and the good things in perspective. It puts the hard things, the difficult things in perspective. We don't like them. They hurt. They're painful. But, oh, in comparison, we're okay because we got the number one thing. Which leads us to number three. And that is, there is no endeavor of life as worthwhile and fulfilling as showcasing God's righteousness in us. By the filling of God's Spirit, I'll tell you, anyone who claims to be a Christian and is not to some degree showcasing the joy that that brings, the hope that it brings, the power that it brings, who isn't showcasing by the sense of their saying, here, I want you to see what I've found. I'm concerned that you get what I've got. If that be the case, I would say of that person either they're not really a Christian or, and this can be very likely, they've never really grasped the truth of God's imputed righteousness. When you get that and you understand that, all other things look different. If you never come to faith, come to him now. Look at the cross. See what he's done for us in his love See if you don't find a love birth as you consider what he's done for sinners like you and me. And then see if he doesn't take you into a place of demonstrative righteousness that gives evidence that you've been declared righteous by him. As we pray together, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this uh, declarative righteousness that we've been given. And we pray for our own demonstrative righteousness that The belief and understanding of what you've done for us would cause us to live our life 
for you. So thank you for the high privilege we have. Take us to the cross. Show us the love of Jesus. And may we find this week to be better than the last only because of what we know now to be true. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day. Thank you.